Hi everyone, this is Daman Thiwana. And this is Kathy Thakur. Welcome to our very first episode of Brown Girls Read. Today, we are discussing our thoughts on Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming. It's one of the best books I have read so far, and I can't wait to share it with you all. Daman, do you want to share a quick synopsis before we start? Sure. Michelle Obama is an American lawyer, a university administrator, and a writer who was the first lady of the United States from 2009 to 2017. Becoming is her deeply personal memoir, where she writes about her upbringing, dreams, marriage, children, and life experiences. It sold over 10 million copies and was a best-selling book in 2018. I can see why. I loved this book. I found it extremely relatable. Her life and her thoughts, as she mentions in the book, inspired me to actually get off my ass and do something that I have always wanted to do. I cannot pick one favorite part in this book because I have so many, but I wanted to ask you if you have a favorite part in the book. As you said, there are really many good parts about the book, but if I have to pick a favorite, that that's even before the book actually starts. It's her dedication that in which she writes to my circle of strong women who always lift me up. I simply love this shout out to the women in her life. It's such a reminder for all of us to, you know, cherish our friendships, to support and uplift each other. And I also feel it's so important for the young girls to see this and understand that female relationships are not just competition over men or, you know, these cat fights, jealousy, like the media would have us believe. Yeah, you're, I think you're absolutely right. I have to confess that I'm a product of an extremely patriarchal society. I mean, I'm from India, so no <laughs> surprise there. And when you grow up in patriarchy, you start to put other women down as well, consciously or subconsciously. And I was like that before. I had to change my thinking as I grew up. Yeah, sadly, a lot of us learn that. I wish it wasn't like that, though. Yeah, I know. But let's get back to what we were discussing, how relatable this book is. You know, Kathy, I found this book relatable right away because when Michelle talks about her aspirations as a kid and the reasons behind them, which is pleasing everyone, I saw myself in her. I was such a people pleaser and probably I'm still unlearning that. You know, I think my whole life has been trying to please the adults in my family. I was a good student in school, even though I hated studying, simply because when I got good marks, my parents would be super pleased with it. So, yes, I agree. Even though now I have outgrown that will to please others, that desire to please everyone around me has pretty much shaped my life. There's a part in the beginning of the book where she writes that, I think one of the most useless questions an adult can ask a child is, what do you want to be when you grow up? As if growing up is finite. As if at some point you become something and that's the end. When I read this quote, I was like, so true, Michelle. We have all been fed this idea growing up that we have to, you know, pick a lane, follow that forever. Like, if I chose to be a doctor, then 10 something years of my life, my time, my resources were gonna go towards this choice I made as a child. Now, because I've invested so much in it, I must continue this path, whether or not it brings me happiness. Happiness is not even a question there. And the belief that we inherit as kids, that we have to make a choice, a choice that will eventually leave us with no other choice, can be quite damaging. 
And it takes years to unlearn this and to realize that we do have a choice always, that we can choose differently and that life is unpredictable and ever-changing. Actually, you know, when I read this quote, I fell in love with her right away. Like, this is one thing that is always going on in my head. Why does the world pressurize you so much to become something? And at what point do you realize that you have, quote, unquote, become something? Because in your eyes, you are still just the same person trying to make sense of everything. Also, I love how she says, as if growing up is finite. It's not. Growing up is basically what defines everyone's life. Absolutely. All right now, Kyati, I have a question for you. Since we're talking about her childhood, Michelle mentions her relative, Robbie. For our listeners um, who have not read the book yet, Robbie is her grandaunt who taught her how to play piano. She's like this strict teacher who will, you know, take nothing less than the best from you, one you look up to and respect and yet are super scared of. So, Kathy, I want to know that if you were a kid who wanted to learn piano and Robbie was the only one teaching, what choice would you make? Hmm, that is an interesting question. So, I was a very shy, quiet child in school. I despised any sort of teacher, strict or lenient, honestly. Having said that, knowing myself, if I really wanted to play piano and Robbie was the only option available, I think I would take it up as a challenge and do it. What about you? Um, I'm not sure what I'd do. I think I'd probably be like, I can teach myself. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> okay, so also since we are on this topic... I remember in the book she mentions how Robbie's piano lessons created a lot of noise that could be heard in their house. And teachers became used to that sound always lingering in the background as if it was forced upon them and they just accepted it. So my question to you is, do you remember any such thing about your childhood where something was just forced upon you and you just accepted it? I think many things. I don't remember if there were many choices or liberties available as a kid. So much was just, you know, pre-decided and it felt like I just have to follow through the prescribed paths. It might also be because I'm a big people pleaser, like I said before. Or should I say a parent pleaser? No, (laughs) that doesn't sound right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Taman, while we're discussing her childhood, there is an instance where she recalls how, as a 10-year-old, she earned the respect of a mean girl named Dee Dee by throwing a punch at her. Have you ever been in physical fights when you were young? I don't think I was in many fights as a child, but I do remember one incident. Um, I wouldn't really call it a fight, but more of like beating up someone. <laughs> it was my sister's classmate and he stole something of hers. Um, I think it was a water bottle and she was crying and So I, you know, went in there to teach that guy a lesson to never do that again. Wow, that's that's amazing. Like, did you guys get bruised? Like, was it like a real fight? No, it wasn't a big fight. Like, he was younger than me. So he got scared. And like, you know, he also started crying. (laughs) And then I got scolded from like, you know, she was not a teacher, but I believe one of the caretakers for the class or something. And I got scolded from her. But yeah. After that, like, I think they remembered this incident for a while. Oh, wow. That's, that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I want to share a quote from the book where she says, My parents talked to me like we were adults. 
They didn't lecture, but rather indulged every question we asked, no matter how juvenile. I think this is one thing that I regret about my childhood. At my house, kids were treated like kids. And I think this behavior was representative of most of the families in India in the 90s. Kids were supposed to be sheltered from everything. You never talked about life choices or drugs or sex or realities of the world with your parents. Oh my God, what are you saying? Drugs? Sex? Choice? (laughs) I have to make sure my family isn't listening to this. Mom, Dad, if you're listening... I'm a good girl and I have done none of those things. <laughs> All right. Um, jokes apart, um, I admire her mother's way of mothering and, you know, her decision of raising adults and not babies. Um, and when I was reading this part of the book, I tried to remember my own upbringing. And I looked around, you know, my upbringing, how my cousins were being raised, how my friends were being raised. And I realized that most of us just grew up without that confidence to make our own decisions. So many of us are always told what to do. I would say like, you know, all of us probably, at least from our generation. And many of the decisions that are made under society's fear, it's so famous, right? And it has such an impact on us that even as adults, we find ourselves incapable of like, you know, making decisions or we are constantly in this doubt. Like, are we making the right decision or not? Yeah, I can totally relate to it. And I have a story to share here. When I was in college, probably like 20 years old, like a full grown adult in the eyes of the world, I asked my parents if I could go on a trip with my friends. And this trip was to Goa. For our listeners who don't know what Goa is, Goa is kind of like this party city in India, kind of like Vegas of India, I think, where like you go and there's like, You can find like drugs and alcohol like very easily. And of course, my parents refused. And they gave like a very weird reason for it. They said, because in Goa, there are bars in so many streets. So they were scared that someone would make me get drunk. (laughs) At that time, I was annoyed. And I hope my parents are not listening to this podcast. Because even though I did go to Goa without telling them, I still give them shit about it from time to time. And they still think that I haven't been to Goa. (laughs) Wow, you're (laughs) sneaky. (laughs) But why I shared this story is because our parents have always sheltered us from the hard facts of life or of places. And they never really put it on us to make our own decisions. Like they were and still are scared of us making our own decisions in life. I can understand. I mean, you are talking of Goa, which is a place that comes with so much stigma around this drugs and drinking, right? I had to beg for trips to places like Masuri, <laughs> Nainital, like NCC camps to Delhi. I think it's just never about the place, honestly. It's just some inherent mistrust our parents are showing us all the time. And I do also feel there's some element of control there. Yes, you're right. So... Moving on from parents bashing. (laughs) So, uh, there's another quote in the book that I think is relevant to our discussion here. An early moment came during her childhood in Chicago when she was sitting with other young girls. And she says, At one point, one of the girls, a second, third or fourth cousin of mine, gave me a sideways look and said, Just a touch hotly, you talk like a white girl. 
Of course, you relate to it in so many ways. And she asked after that, America would bring to Barack Obama the same question what my cousin was subconsciously putting on me. Are you what you appear to be? Do I trust you or not? Basically squaring who you are, where you come from and where you want to go. Have you encountered a situation like this? Yeah, of course I have. Growing up, living in a city, I would get this from cousins and relatives um, who lived in small towns or villages. Then I moved to bigger cities and that alienation increases further. It's almost like a price you pay for individualism. The more you grow to be you, the more people are going to try and bring you back to what makes sense to them. And now that I'm in the US, it's a whole new dynamic. When I go to India, I'm not Indian enough. And here, I'm not American enough. So, you know, stuck somewhere in between. Yeah, I can totally relate to it. This is what I go through in my every visit to India. And basically, every day I live in the US. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of us are in, you know, the same bucket. All right, then let's discuss more of the book after this short break. I see a room full of business leaders and surgeons and barristers. I see women who are going to win elections and science competitions and arts awards. Do not be afraid to fail. Let's continue our discussion, Kathy. I have another question for you, which I'm sure you would have something to say to. When Michelle got her period, she announced it to everyone in the household. Can you relate to that? No, I cannot. I do not at all. I am a 30-year-old woman and I still can't tell people that I have gotten my period unless it's a female-only group. And, you know, we still carry our pads and tampons like secret weapons. No one should find out. It is one of those things that is completely normal but still not normalized. Like it's some disease that, you know, we have to hide and be ashamed of. Okay, so... I have an interesting story about this. So, of course, when I got my first period, my mom described to me what this crisis in my life actually is. Why is it important and so on. But she also added, please remember, you don't talk about this with boys. And even at that age, I think I was probably like 10 or 12 years old. I couldn't understand why should I not talk to boys about this or why I should hide it. Anyhow, pretty soon I realized that period talk was taboo. But recently, I was on a vacation with my girlfriends and I was on my periods. We were in a restaurant and there was one guy on our table who's my friend's husband. And I just said that, man, I hate being on a vacation on my periods. And we started talking about tampons versus sanitary pads versus menstrual cups. I don't know if my friend's husband was annoyed or weirded out with this conversation, but it felt super liberating to talk about it with my girlfriends, especially because one of my friends told us about her experience with the menstrual cups and I learned something new. So, a lesson learned. Talk about your issues with people. Male or female doesn't matter. That's awesome. I'm really inspired by you. I'm going to try that. Okay, now I want to talk about something which I'm sure you would have found weird too. A father-daughter-boyfriend trio. (laughs) This is something that seems unimaginable to me. Yeah. The way dating and relationships are acceptable here in the US, and, you know, they're basically considered a rite of passage in a way. I feel we miss out a lot on normal relationships growing up. 
we spend so much time and energy to keep any relationships hidden from our parents and society so in a way it ended up being a long distance relationship even if you live really close to each other <laughs> and i feel that it denied the possibility of exploring the relationship as a whole i hear things are getting better now at least in the bigger cities but it would have been nice to have the freedom growing up to be a full person without all this fear and shame around it you know what i feel this could be a whole different podcast in itself like there is so much re- i'm sure there is so much resentment among uh, our generation for their for what our parents generation to, did to them in terms of relationships <laughs> Yeah, we are back to parents bashing now. <laughs> I guess, but let's move on. So, now that we have transitioned onto her college life in Princeton, she mentions that she was the only black person at a lot of places in her college. And one of the things that she says is, it takes energy to be the only black person in the lecture hall or one of a few non-white people trying out for a play. Were you at any time in your life the only kind of person in a room? so many times um in my experience i have found this to be very true even though we are in all these diverse places and i have been lucky enough to be in states like california and new york which are relatively liberal and accepting towards immigrants but still there is a skewed responsibility and the weight of which is largely falling on the minorities and i don't just mean with you know american or white people here that that's one aspect undeniably but i have experienced this within the south asian groups as well right there were cliques formed based on the region people were from for example like you know all the bombay people stayed together and like other places like based on any region they were from and it seemed like there was no room for you to cross over if you are outside that group and i want to point out that if this is an experience of a person from a minority that has grown up in america like the quote you mentioned so you can wonder what it be like for immigrants who have additional cultural shock and language barriers added to all of this yeah you're you're absolutely right well switching gears to a lighter topic i want to talk about michelle's college boyfriend what stood out to me was the difference in personalities she describes she identifies herself as this box checker one who has a mental list of things going on uh, who also struggles with the question of being good enough analyzes herself strives to be better and her boyfriend has this contrasting personality who ha- who's the one with swerve who's fun spontaneous who decided to be a sports mascot after his degree instead of going to a med school so i'm just curious which one do you identify with i think i have now become a swerve person But I think I was a box checker before. You know, now that I've grown up, I have realized that life is short. Do what you feel like doing. But I think if I had to guess for you, you are a box checker. <laughs> yeah, you guessed it right. <laughs> <laughs> I could see this difference in the kind of notes we created for this podcast itself. Your notes were so well color coded and described. Mine were more like a monotonous display of my random thoughts in black and white as I went through the book. <laughs> So, so yeah, it's interesting. I, I just can't help it. The color coding really gets to me. Even this morning I was just, you know, fixing a document to look at like more prettier, more color coded. <laughs> All right. Uh let's take a short break now. If I worry about who liked me and who 
thought I was cute when I was your age, I wouldn't be married to the president of the United States. All right, now let's talk about her relationship and marriage. What I found super hilarious was Barack Obama's introduction in the book. You remember his first mention is Barack Obama was late on day one. <laughs> This made me laugh so much. You know, partly because it feels like a romantic comedy setup where we are introduced to the main lead, and also because it describes my husband. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I grew up watching all these movies where the guy waits for the girl, but let me tell you that has never been the case for me. He would always be running late even today. <laughs> I love how all through the book whenever she has described Barack Obama, she has done it in such a wifely way. Yeah. <laughs> you know like I hate this 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 about him, but I still love him. I'm still enamored. <laughs> I got to learn so much about marriages from this book as well. Like she was actually against politics. She didn't believe in it, but she supported him. In this part of her life, like the after marriage part, she's trying to tell us how marriage really works. Like she let him go to Indonesia to write a book. That's hard. And if you ask me, a little irrational on Barack's part. I mean, if my husband comes up to me and tells me that he wants to go to Indonesia to write a book, I would freak out. Like I don't even let him play FIFA without consulting <laughs> me first. <laughs> Or I would probably go with him, which would defeat the entire purpose of being alone. But you know, she was extremely understanding and supportive. You know, I have to add something here. the part where barack obama misses his book deadline and then now has to pay a fine of like about $40,000 i feel that could easily be me <laughs> i really don't want to tell you this but i procrastinated so much to do the research for our podcast whereas i've read this book before and the first time i read this i devoured it like a glutton so yeah i would totally be the one that misses deadlines and ends up paying a huge fine <laughs> i could totally see that happening also you know michelle says about barack that he was a serious overcommitter taking on new projects without much regard for limits of time and energy that could be the tagline for me <laughs> just shift the gender pronoun there and It actually is my Instagram status these days. <laughs> also, in their marriage, they have generally been extremely supportive of each other's goals and aspirations. Like if the other person feels that their partner couldn't do something, they would never say no or they would never try to pull them back. They've always stood next to each other like a rock. That's so beautiful to read. Yeah, it really is. This was the golden time for us, for the balance of our marriage, him with his purpose and me with mine. Statements like these would definitely make you believe that she was totally in love with their marriage and what a right kind of balance does to a marriage. While we're talking about their marriage, um I do have a question for you, Kathy. Michelle talks about their Friday date nights. I know a few friends of mine who also follow a similar ritual. Um so I want to ask do you and your husband go out for regular date nights? We don't. Honestly, I don't know when I transformed into this boring person who doesn't like to dress up, but my idea of a date night is to just order food, get a glass of wine and watch something on Netflix while cuddling on the floor of our hall. This might sound boring, but it's so much fun for us. It might also be because it's just my husband and I in our apartment, so every day is a date sort of. Oh, that's so adorable. Honestly, to me, that doesn't sound boring at all. 
we also don't have a ritual per se. I do love to go out. So if we have a free weekend, we make it a date. Or sometimes we just do something at home, like cooking something different or we'll just watch a movie together. <laughs> yeah. Let's also talk about something that was going on in her life at this point. She was struggling with her career choices. She was trying to make a career switch or trying to find out what she likes, what she would like to do. And, you know, when she told her mother that she hated being a lawyer, I could totally relate her mother's response to what my mom or dad would say. Her mom said, I say make the money first and worry about your happiness later. Do you relate to this? You know, I do see a point in what her mom said. It doesn't feel good to hear that from a parent ever because we feel limited and controlled. But whether we like it or not, money plays a big role in the quality of life that we have. It may not be the only factor, but undeniably, it's a big one. Yeah. We see all these quotes on social media, which are like, follow your passion, travel now, save later, etc., which I call Instagram advice. And these can be really harmful. For a person that comes from a place of privilege, they can follow this advice and maybe build on it. Good for them. But what about those who lack the support and the resources to follow their dreams? Who actually have to work on survival before they can think of other things? Right. Yeah, we have all heard that money doesn't buy happiness. But money does buy food, clothing, housing, your lifestyle. And I know there's research that says money stops making you happy after a point. But you have to be at that point to end your struggle. True. And I believe for all of us, there needs to be a right kind of learning early on in life to really, really understand this. And then we can make the choice that we want to make. You know, that is a really great point. Very profound. Thanks, Kathy. Okay, now I want to talk about something that I loved reading the most about, which is her growth as a woman. She talks about so many different phases of her life, being a wife, a daughter, a mother, a public figure, and a woman all through. Somewhere in the book, Michelle writes, For many women, including myself, wife can feel like a loaded word. I think I did feel that for quite a while. Now I feel I've gotten used to it, but when I was a newlywed, I kept referring to my husband as my boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> Part of it could be a habit too, but I feel the transition seemed too big to me. Yes. Going from an easy role to one with a lot of responsibility and expectations that just doesn't happen overnight. You know, this exact same thing happened to me. I kept referring to my husband as my boyfriend. Also, one more thing that I still have trouble with is saying tu and not aap. For our listeners who don't know the difference, in Hindi, if you have to give respect to someone, the pronoun for that is aap. You use it for your parents or elders and people also expect you to talk respectfully to your husband. And if you're talking informally with someone, like a friend, you say tu. So till date, my family keeps getting offended when I use tu with my husband. But I just can't transition like that. It seems unnatural to call him up. Yeah, I know what you mean. I can't grasp that still. And you know what? People also expect you to address your boyfriend as up. And it's totally okay for you to say tu for your girlfriend. I mean, what is that? I know. Anyway, moving on. One thing I want to mention is her honesty. She went through miscarriages, fertility challenges, IVF, before she could get pregnant. And I love that she talked about this with such honesty. 
even in this day and age when we call ourselves modern it's such a taboo topic which is discussed probably in families alone or maybe a couple of close friends right these things are highly common as many as 50% of all pregnancies end in miscarriage and yet still it's viewed as a personal failure and i feel that this creates a very isolated state for someone going through it if only it was acceptable to be open it could be supported better yeah you're absolutely right and that's very true even other women issues like pcos has to be hush hush but why i have no idea why these are totally normal things that happen to humans around us and instead of building a support system we are taught to stay isolated and that's why i loved her honesty so much here yeah i also admired that she opened up about her marriage problems with honesty after which she and barak started couples counseling now that's another thing that stays hushed down right i know well after they did couples counseling michelle made some changes starting with caring for herself and enforcing better schedules for her daughters which meant no longer waiting for dad to be home and putting the responsibility back on him to show up if he wanted to spend time with them i know that i love that she writes that i didn't want them to ever believe that life began when the man of the house arrived home this is just so powerful yeah i look back on how some of the messages we got growing up like feed the men first wait for dad to make decisions or to show up there are some moms who won't eat till dad is home there are just so many of these examples yeah and all of them just subtly plant an idea of unequal value assigned to dad versus mom that later translates to man versus women i totally agree also in this phase she had probably made her peace with staying at home and being a mom but she just couldn't let go of that one opportunity that came her way i think this is where you see that the women who fight for themselves end up actually making it also not to mention that her husband wasn't around at all because he was busy with being a senator so she was basically doing it all on her own and what i love in this part is that she got a job opportunity in a university hospital in the interview she made it clear what kind of a job schedule she was looking for like work from home to be able to make pediatrician visits etc also she took baby sasha to her interview like this is the kind of confidence i need in my life yeah me too i i need that skill in my life <laughs> another thing to notice barack obama is contending for a senator she gets a call from one of the senator's wives to join their club and she says no that was probably the most inspiring to me that she wants to do some actual work rather than get lost in the bling of the washington dc life you can totally see the kind of woman she has become someone who is not ready to back down from any challenge that life throws at her she is so inspiring i was truly impressed by her strength and you remember the part where she goes to buckingham palace and meets the queen yeah she kind of summarizes a look between them with we were just two tired ladies oppressed by our shoes <laughs> so now there's something that i have in common with the former first lady of the united states and the queen of england <laughs> and on that note i want to ask you kyati have you ever been oppressed by your shoes you know daman 
I have been oppressed by my shoes, by my bra, by the shapewear, and by society in general. <laughs> Haven't we all? <laughs> all right, Kathy. I have one last question for you. Would you want to live in White House with Secret Service tagged along all the time, social security checks for your friends, basically no privacy for four years? You know, I think I would love to live in the White House. I would not have to cook or make my bed or clean my house. All these things that I really hate to do. And who doesn't want that? And I'll have the best possible trainers or professionals for whatever I want to pursue in my day. So what do you think? Now that you say it, I would not mind that trade-off for sure. <laughs> so this is our take on Michelle Obama's Becoming. And we hope that you enjoyed listening. Please leave a comment. We would love to hear from you. Both of us love reading this book and highly recommend it if you haven't read it already. If you have suggestions for a book that you would like us to discuss, send us a DM on our Instagram, Brown Girls Read Pod. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and subscribe to our channel. Keep listening. Keep listening.